fills, a faith that fills. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give me physical, spiritual strength, please, Lord, to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A faith that fills. Some of you in this, <clears throat> in this room uh, are sports fans. I try to avoid using sports illustrations because I know not everybody's a sports fan. Some of you are sports fans. Some of you are not, but most of you uh, may recognize the name Tom Brady. As much as it pains me to say it, Tom Brady may, or, may very well be one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game of football. And now retired, you don't have to rub it in, whoever said of course, you don't have to rub it in. <laughs> Now retired, praise God, Tom Brady, he boasts an incredible career. He is, to this day, the NFL leader in career quarterback wins. He leads in quarterback regular season wins. He has the most quarterback playoff wins in history. He has the most Super Bowl MVP awards, and he is the only Super Bowl MVP to win the MVP with two different franchises. He has the most Pro Bowl selections and the, most, and the first unanimous NFL MVP. On top of that, he has won seven Super Bowl wins. Some of you are like, none of that means anything to me. It means he's the dude, okay? And throughout the course of his 23-year career, maybe you don't know anything about football, but you'll know this. Over the course of his 23-year career, Brady is estimated to have earned over $450 million from football alone. So that's not including endorsements and all that. It's just from the game of football, $450 million. He has had, by all accounts, an amazing career. Some people may be tempted to look at his life and to covet that kind of a life. But back in 2005, there was an interesting moment. I'll be honest, I'm not sure if I've used this illustration or not, but if I have, bear with me, because it really does set us up nicely for where we're going this morning. In 2005, during his career, or during the midst of his career, and after he had just won his third Super Bowl ring, Brady sat down on 60 Minutes to be interviewed by Steve Croft. And Croft, after recounting how Brady was an unlikely candidate to be as successful as he is. He asked him a very interesting question. He says he'd won three Super Bowls at, the, at this point. He said, which of those three uh, rings is your favorite? And Brady kind of paused for a minute and he said, the next one. Now, I'll be honest, that's a cold-blooded response right there. <laughs> the next one's going to be my favorite. But it was interesting because you started to get the sense right then and there that Brady just wasn't satisfied with what he'd done. But then Croft kind of pressed a little bit further and he said, but listen, I mean, you, you, weren't, you weren't really predicted to be this great. Like it's gotta be satisfying to prove everybody else wrong. And Brady's response, though somewhat unanticipated, was a brutally honest response. And this is what he said. I'm just gonna read it to you. He says, well, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. He says, me? I just think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me now? And so Croft asked him this question, well, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. See, what Brady is declaring is a fundamental truth 
that many fail to recognize. That there is within us this longing. Right? There's this longing inside of us. There's this desire for purpose. There's just this general desire that no amount of earthly recognition is able to satisfy. Right? No amount of earthly praise will fill it. No amount of worldly stuff will do the trick. And Tom Brady is not the first to recognize this. Right? Even King Solomon, perhaps the most accomplished human being by all worldly standards, declares in Ecclesiastes 2.11, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see what Solomon was wrestling with. The same thing that humans throughout the course of history have wrestled with, including Super Bowl champions is what is it that will fill this longing inside of me? This hunger that we all seem to have. In other words, how is it that you and I can be truly satisfied? And what our text declares to us is that Jesus is our satisfaction. So again, what I want to talk about is this idea of a faith that fills. What we have in our text this morning is Jesus answering this fundamental question for us of where it is that you and I can find fulfillment and satisfaction. I told you I pulled an audible. Man, it's a great connection to my already football analogy, right? So I don't have any points for you this morning, but what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through this text, and I want to show you how in these, in these few verses, Jesus presents himself as the thing that will fill our greatest desire that will satisfy us more than anything else can. So let's set the scene, right? John writes this in verses 22 through 25. It says, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats, went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So if you remember back to last week, got to set the scene a little bit. We discussed at the beginning of chapter 6 the two events of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And then Jesus walking on water. And we talked about how those two stories have kind of different levels for us. They have the surface level, some truths that we can pull out from the story themselves. But they also have a redemptive level. That's where we ended last week. And you may remember I made a very significant claim. Right? I'm trying to recap for those of you who weren't here. What Jesus is ultimately doing in the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water as John presents it is he is reenacting the Passover before he recreates the Passover, right? We know that the Passover festival was on everyone's mind. John 6, 4 says, now the Passover, a Jewish festival was near. So everybody was already thinking about the Passover and what they celebrated at the Passover was not just the event of the angel of death passing over those who had sprinkled the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. That was a part of the Passover celebration. That's typically how we think of the Passover celebration. But for the Jew, the Passover celebration was bigger than just that. Yes, they recognized the blood of the lamb that allowed the angel of death to pass by where they would not face, face the judgment of God. But they, they celebrated in the Passover the entire Exodus account. Specifically, though, not only the blood, but also God's provision as he provided manna from heaven for his people and also his sovereign deliverance as he parted the Red Sea. 
And so what Jesus is doing, right? John's making a theological point at the beginning of John chapter 6 with these two events. Is he saying man, that Jesus is recreating the Passover? His ability to feed the multitude with five loaves and two fish ties back to the manna from heaven. And his sovereignty over the waves as he walks on water recreates the parting of the Red Sea and God's sovereignty over his creation. We talked about last week how they were looking to Jesus to be another Moses. But Jesus wasn't focused on being another Moses. He was focused on being the sacrificial lamb. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out. Can we just acknowledge, maybe you're like, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't always give me what I desire. Because here's the thing. We mentioned this a bit last week. They wanted another Moses because they thought their biggest problem was Roman occupation. They thought their biggest need was to simply have their land back as their own. And a desire to be in the land and experience the blessing of that promise. Hear me, it wasn't a bad desire. But Jesus could see what they couldn't. They had a very limited perspective. See, here's the thing that you and I often forgive. Jesus didn't refuse to be another Moses because he thought that their desire was bad. Jesus didn't refuse to be another Moses because he didn't have the power to deliver them from Rome. That's light work for him. Jesus refused to be another Moses the way they wanted because he knew something they didn't, that Rome wasn't their greatest problem. Now, here's why I'm focusing on this. You and I, like, like Israel back then, have a very limited perspective. And what that means is we can often see what is, but we can't see what's next. And sometimes our good desires for, for that we request of God, the good things we ask for, if God gave it to us now, it would be catastrophic in terms of what comes next. So what that means for us is that if, if God gave us what we desire now, it could potentially ruin us with what he knows is coming. Because God sees what's coming, oftentimes he will withhold a good thing knowing there's a better thing. I mean, go back to Israel. Like in John chapter 6, you see what Jesus knew is that Rome wasn't their greatest problem. And in fact, God was going to use Rome and the, first, and the future persecution they would inflict on Christians to spread the gospel throughout the world. What God knew was that what's better than land for Israel now is the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth later. What I'm trying to get you to see is that if God is not giving you the good things your heart desires now, and I'm talking about the good things, the things he tells you to ask for, and he still says no. We have to trust that he knows that there's something better. But see, this is where faith comes in. Because faith is not knowing what will come. That's called facts. But we don't walk by facts. We walk by faith. Faith is not knowing what comes next. Faith is believing that in whatever does come, God's promises still stand. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. That he is for us and not against us. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So there are some times where we're asking good things of God and God's saying not right now or he's saying wait a minute and we have to trust that man this is a God who is for me and not against me. This is a God who sits outside of time and space and knows what comes next and all I can see is what is. But this is a God who has promised that he began the good work. And he will bring it to completion. See, we have to trust him in faith. 
But they wanted another Moses. But what we saw last week is that Jesus was trying to get them to see, you don't need another Moses. You need a better lamb. So after feeding the 5,000, Jesus walks on the water to meet his disciples. Now, we talked about it briefly, but it's wild, right, that in John's account, when he gets in the boat, they're just miraculously on the other side. I don't know, I don't know how I'd missed that before, but I'm like, that's wild. He will get you to the other side. I'm not going to preach it again. Just go back and listen to, to last week. So they go to Capernaum. So as we pick up our story, the crowd that Jesus fed realized that Jesus wasn't there anymore. See, they had done some detective work. They're like, we know that the disciples, there was one boat. The disciples got in the boat. They went over there, but Jesus wasn't in the boat. So like, he's got to be around here somewhere. So they go looking for him and they can't find him anywhere. And they realized that Jesus wasn't on that side of the sea anymore, that somehow he had gotten to Capernaum. So they then get in boats, travel across the sea to Capernaum to find Jesus. And where they locate Jesus is in the synagogue of, of Capernaum. We learn that in verse 59. He said, he said these things. So everything we're talking about this week and next week, he, he was saying these things in the synagogue of Capernaum. So they find him. And in verse 25, they ask him this. When did you get here? When did you get here? Now look at what he says beginning in verse 26. He says, truly I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So Jesus doesn't necessarily answer their question. Or we've seen that before. Because he knows the better question. And so he just jumps right in to identifying the problem. And he says, listen, you aren't pursuing me because you understand your desperate spiritual need for me. You're pursuing me because of what you think I can do for you physically. I just exited out of my sermon. Don't use technology. So once again, he's saying, you're not following me because you understand who I am. You're following me because you think I can meet all your physical needs. Now, here's the thing. They were right. We can't miss that. They were right in the sense that Jesus could meet all their physical needs. The problem wasn't wrong belief. The problem was hope in a lesser desire, right? Like they were, they were right that Jesus could meet all their physical needs. The problem was they desired to have their needs met more than they desired Jesus. They wanted the gift more than they wanted the giver. And even the language Jesus uses, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs. A better translation would be not because you perceived the signs, because you understood what the signs were pointing to. You're pursuing me because you just want something to eat. In other words, Jesus is saying everything I have done has been a sign and you missed what the sign was pointing to. The ultimate purpose of the sign was to point to something else, something better. But Jesus is saying, but you were just satisfied with the sign. Think of it like this. I like to hike. Uh, I, I really enjoy hiking. There's a trail that I've done quite a few times, a trail down in Georgia. I actually took Brandon on that trail with me a few years back. Great trail. Uh, it gets tough in some sections. A hard trail. You cross some water. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good hike. But what makes the, hi the hike so amazing is at the very end of the trail, Right, the beauty of the trails realized at the end, because at the end, there is this magnificent waterfall. 
right? And it's a cool waterfall because it kind of comes down and then flattens out and there are pools. And then it flows down and flattens out and there are pools. And so we spent half a day just floating around in them pools. We were like kids in a candy store eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, just hanging out by a pool. It was great. So the goal, right, we wanted to get to this waterfall. We wanted to see this. We wanted to savor it. We wanted to just sit. We were hot. We just wanted to sit in some water. It's an amazing trail. But one of the things that you might not have noticed, but but I know about the trail because I've been there so much, is that when you start, before you ever see the waterfall, there's a sign there, right? It lets you know that you're at the right trail. It's a little map, marks out different sections of the trail, turns and side trails. But at the end of the trail, they mark the waterfall with a little symbol. And then next to it is this really small, probably like two inch by two inch picture of the waterfall. Now you would think I was crazy, If I drove the five hours to take that hike to go see the waterfall, I get to the trailhead. I get out of my car. I put on my pack, make sure I've got my water. I walk to the sign. I look at the tiny picture of the waterfall. I say, that's it. That's what I came here for. And I turn around and drive home. You'd think I was crazy. But in essence, that's what Jesus is saying to them. Right? You're looking at the sign. And you think the sign is the end goal. But the sign's pointing to something bigger and better and more beautiful. Now let me say this. You might be thinking, Michael, we've heard all of this before. They wanted a sign instead of Jesus. We've seen this before. You've literally talked about this probably every sermon. You're absolutely right. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to talk about it some more throughout this series. Because what we're talking about, you're right, it's not necessarily new information. But one of the things we have to remember is that in the book of John, there are themes throughout the book of John. And one of the themes is that you keep missing what the sign is pointing to and you're worshiping the sign rather than what it points to. And so we'll see it again in some way, shape, uh, in some way, shape, or form. What we've already seen in these first five chapters, we'll see them in the weeks to come. Jesus is going to keep teaching the same thing in different ways. Now here's why I point this out. It's easy to hear this and think, all right, can't we just get something new? Like, come on, pastor, find a new thing to teach out of these things. But I don't want you to miss the significance of the very fact that Jesus repeats the same thing over and over. The fact that it comes up chapter after chapter after chapter. That very fact alone teaches us something about Jesus himself. In all of this repetition, don't miss the patience of our Savior throughout the book of John. The fact that the people want a sign and not Jesus, has been noted in John 1.11, in John 2.18, in John 2.24, in John 4.45, in John 4.48, in John 6.1. And again, in this passage, we see this over and over, how the people don't want Jesus. They just want the stuff they think he can do for them. It's almost like that's a temptation we should pay attention to, where we want the stuff that Jesus can do more than we want Jesus himself. And the stuff's not bad. It's just not as good as he is. But all of this has been going on. They want a sign. They want a sign. They want a sign. They want a sign. They don't want Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't want Jesus. And still, Jesus teaches them this truth so that they might believe. See, that's how you know you and I couldn't be Jesus. Because most of us in this room would have written him off at John 1.11. He went to his own people and they didn't want him. Cool. I'm out. I'd have been like, oh, you don't want me? That's fine. I don't want you either. But can we just praise God for a minute for the patience of Jesus? The patience that he has not just with them, but with us as well. That he is kind to us even when we miss him. 
Right? Like, I don't think, I think we can read this, this interaction that Jesus is having and we can read it with this tone of like condescension or like frustration. Like Jesus is just irritated with them. And it was kind of eye-opening to me to just read it with a different tone in my head. Of like, this isn't a mad savior. This is a loving king who is repeating these same things over and over because he genuinely does love the people he came to save. And it is easy for us in the repetition to miss the beauty of what it reveals to us about Jesus. It's like Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it's actually God's kindness and his patience that leads us to repentance. Let's call a spade a spade. How many of us in this room have struggled with the same stupid thing over and over and over and over and Jesus still hasn't left us? It's because he is kind and he is patient. But again, this repetition ought to serve as a warning for us. It warns of us of how easy it is to be in the very presence of Jesus and desire the wrong things. I've warned you week after week, and I will continue to do so, Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the treasure, not the stuff he can do for us. And anything he does for us is meant to serve as a sign of his character and his nature. It's so that we would love him more not the stuff more. So Jesus is giving these signs, not so the people will desire the signs, but so they will see who he is. So they want the signs, and Jesus says, hey, don't live for the signs. Don't simply pursue earthly things. This is what he says in verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you got your priorities mixed up. You are so fixated on earthly things that you are missing heavenly treasures. Can I tell you this morning, church, that that struggle is not relegated to the people that Jesus is talking to in John 6 alone. You and I can become so focused on earthly things that we miss heavenly treasures. That same struggle is true of us. You and I, if we are not constantly and faithfully pursuing Jesus, we can begin to miss the eternal blessing we have in Christ as we become distracted by earthly pursuits. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. This might shock you, but this is what I believe. There's nothing wrong with pursuing career advancement. There's nothing wrong with pursuing a pay raise. There's nothing wrong with pursuing earthly delights as long as our hope and joy aren't dependent on those things. Because here's the thing, here's the truth of the matter. God actually wants you to delight in this world that he created. He does. God wants you to delight in the music that you listen to. God wants you to delight in your family. God wants you to delight in the beauty of his creation. God wants you to delight in the technology that you have. God wants you to delight in the vacations that you take. God wants you to actually enjoy his creation. Why? Because he does. But creation makes a lousy God. The problem is not delighting in the things. Celebrate. We ought to be the most celebratory people of all. Delight in the good things around you. Pursue the good things around you, but never at the expense of Jesus 
because he's the better treasure. You see, there was actually nothing wrong, I believe this, with the people delighting in the fact that Jesus could perform a miracle with five loaves and two fish, and even as the text told us in John chapter 5, that they were able to eat to their full. There was nothing wrong with the delighting in that. The problem came when their hope began to depend on that. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you place your hope in the things of this world, you will inevitably fail because they will inevitably fail you. That's the very thing Jesus gets at in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, right? Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now listen, that's a different text and a different sermon, but I've always found it fascinating. I'm just gonna throw this one out for you. I've, I've found it fascinating that he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Because we often think of it the other way around. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But that's not what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to go. See, that's the danger of following your heart. Because it's just going to follow what you treasure anyway. But the beauty of that is that when you treasure Jesus, your heart will follow. And I'm going to preach Matthew next, y'all. All right, so going back to John chapter 6. Jesus is saying, don't work solely for the things of this world. You can work for the things of the world, but don't work solely for the things of this world. Don't sacrifice the better treasure for lesser treasures, for food of this world. But instead, this is what Jesus said, pursue the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And so listen, in this Jesus is basically giving the gospel right here. He is saying, you need me because the things of this world will never satisfy. The things of this world will never fill that deep longing that you and I each have. It will never fill those deep desires that you, you and I have. The ways of the world will never satisfy. But Jesus is saying, but I will. He's saying, I will satisfy your greatest need. And so what is our greatest need? Here it is, to, to have life eternally with God. That's our greatest need. To have what was broken at the fall restored. Where we are no longer separated from God, but we are brought near as his image bearers to represent him. It's to be made right with him. And that church, that's the gospel that we believe, is it not? That our sin has separated us from God. That you and I, by nature, are children deserving of wrath. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And I know that's hard. Right? We, we are by nature deserving of wrath. But God who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. The whole reason Jesus showed up, the reason that we have the book of John is because God is faithful to deliver on his promise and he promised that what was broken in the fall he would restore. And Jesus came, he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He was crucified, buried, raised from the dead three days later. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come in faith and repentance and find life eternal for your soul. That's the gospel that we believe. And Jesus is saying, listen, the Son of Man will give you this eternal life. Why? Because the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What does it mean that the Father has set his seal of approval on Jesus? Here it is in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What's the seal he sent from God? 
Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice in the eyes of God the Father to pay the debt that we over and to be the better Passover lamb on our behalf. He is the gift of God. But they miss it. They miss it. I mean, look at what they say in verse 28. What can we do to perform the works of God? And here's what they're saying. All right, Jesus, we hear you. God has something better for us than earthly food. We don't know if they actually believe him, but they're at least acknowledging like, all right, we're not going to pursue earthly food. God's got something better for us. He wants us to have eternal life. Here's what they're asking. How do we earn it? How do we earn it? What do I have to do to merit this favor from God? What do I need to do to earn eternal life? And so Jesus meets their question head on. And look at what he says in verse 29. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. You believe in the one that he has sent. Now for us, we hear that and we're like, yeah, of course. We've heard that. We're Christians. But we have to understand how controversial this statement is for them. Because for the Jew, they understood their position as God's chosen people to hinge on their responsibility to keep the law. Right? God says in Jeremiah 7, 23, right? Obey me and then I will be your God and you will be my people. Follow every way I command you so that it will go well for you. And when Jesus says this, it's shocking to them. What do you mean we just have to believe? What about keeping the Sabbath? What about all the ceremonial laws? What about all the stuff we've been told to do for the entirety of our lives? But here's the thing. The keeping of the law was never to be the means by which the people entered into the covenant of promise. Keeping the law was evidence of their faith in the covenant promise. Keeping the law was supposed to be evidence of their faith. But what they had done is they dropped the faith aspect completely and simply tried to earn their way into God's favor by keeping the law. And what Jesus is saying is that you can never earn eternal life by keeping the law. How do we know that? James 2.10, if you keep the whole law but you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all of it. One sin and you're just a lawbreaker in general. Jesus is saying you can never earn eternal life by keeping the law. But listen to me, church, that's great news for us. That was great news for them because the Bible makes it clear there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us can do enough works to make ourselves right with God. So their question is kind of a crazy question. What do I need to do to earn God's salvation? And what Jesus is telling them is that the eternal life, this eternal life that I'm offering, it's never dependent on how well you kept the law. It's always dependent on faith in God and his promises. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of his promises. Now here's what I want you to see. I think there's a lesson here for us as well, a good reminder that we don't have to perform our way into God's favor. No, 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 I need need you to hear me. We don't have to perform our way into God's favor. See, often when we talk about not earning your salvation, we immediately think of the lost, right? Of like, all right, we got to tell people who don't believe in Jesus that they don't have to earn their way into heaven. But I think that oftentimes it's not them who struggle with this the most, it's us as Christians, where we can convince ourselves that if I don't do everything right, God's just not going to hear me. God's just not going to love me. God's not going to forgive me. God's not going to be for me. He's not going to finish this work that he started. Oftentimes, we have convinced ourselves that we have to perform, maybe not to earn God's favor, but to keep God's favor. 
But what Jesus is declaring to us is that even for us in Christ, we don't have to perform to keep his favor. How do I know? Because Jesus showed up. He, showed, he is God's evidence of his favor to us. Like we know John 3, 6, I just quoted, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Does not say, for God so loved the world because we did it right. Doesn't say, for God so loved the world because we acted right. Like I know we talk about it frequently, church, we just gotta acknowledge that none of us made it into this place because we got ourselves together. Like none of us are here because we've mastered this sense of, there's some of you sitting in this room right now who you know you are struggling with deep, dark, nasty sin. And still God loves you. Like we're not here because we've mastered this holiness. We're here because Jesus showed up and we said, man, that's the son of God and that's the best I got. But it's enough. See, Jesus is telling them that eternal life has never depended on them. But this was tough for them. This was hard for them to hear. So look at how they respond. Verse 30 and 31. Don't miss the irony in this, okay? So what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked, what are you going to perform? Literal translation, what are your working works? Like they're so fixated on these works. They say our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, don't let the irony of this be lost on you. Jesus is saying, hey, the problem is all you want is signs. All you want is signs. Specifically, Jesus pointed out that they just wanted food more than they wanted him. Because of that, right, they're missing a better thing. Jesus is saying, I'm offering you more than earthly provisions. I'm offering you eternal life. Here's how you get it. Believe in me. And what is their response? Cool, just give us another sign. Like in essence, they're asking for more bread. We get you. Don't pursue, right, the food that perishes. But if you want to prove yourself, give us a little bit of that food that perishes. But it gets better, right? They say our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. So here's what they're saying. This is their argument. Moses proved to us who he was because he gave us manna from heaven in the wilderness. They're saying Moses gave us bread. What are you going to do? Now here's the irony. How quickly they forgot what Jesus had just done a day before. He took five loaves and two fish and fed potentially 10 to 12,000 people. But Jesus, you got to prove it to us. You got to do something with bread so that we know you are who you say you are. Here's, it's funny to kind of reflect on the irony of that. But if we're honest, it can be somewhat devastating when we do the same thing. Where time and time again, Jesus has proven that he is a sufficient treasure. He is a sufficient supply to our need. He is a sufficient fulfillment for our desires. And then the first obstacle comes. God, prove it to me. Prove to me that you are who you say you are. But again, don't miss this. What they are saying is basically this. Prove to us, watch this, that you are another Moses. Because once again, they want another Moses. 
But Jesus is going to correct their thinking, and he says this in verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That's a very important line. Moses didn't give you any bread, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. He's saying, listen, Moses didn't make this stuff appear. God gave it. Moses just happened to be the guy at the helm. And he says, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, listen, you're putting your hope again in the wrong thing. Moses didn't do anything. The bread came down because God gave it. And Jesus is saying, what you have to understand is that the reason the bread came down wasn't because Moses was so great. It's because God is that faithful. He made a promise and he's going to keep his promise. And Jesus is saying, once again, God is now keeping his promises because he's giving you bread. But again, they miss it. And verse 34, then they said, sir, give us this bread always. It's like they're saying, hey, Jesus, this is what we've been asking for. Just give us some bread to feed us. We'll leave you alone. Meet our needs. And here it is. The first I am statement of the seven that we will see in the book of John in verse 35. He said, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus tells them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. See, just like we saw last week, the people wanted Moses at the beginning of John 6 a savior who could deliver them from Rome. And last week, Jesus declared, you don't need a better Moses, you need a better lamb. And this week, the people still want Moses. But Jesus is declaring, you don't need a better Moses, you need better bread. And when you put those two things together, the imagery there is very powerful. Because in the Passover, the lamb was a remembrance of what saved them from death. And the bread is a reminder of who sustained their life. And Jesus is essentially telling them, I am sufficient to conquer death and to sustain your life. And then Jesus makes that beautiful statement at the end of 35. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And here we have to acknowledge that Jesus is not speaking of physical sustenance. He is offering spiritual hope. Because again, Jesus is saying there is a need that is deeper than some physical bread. We have needs that are greater than money in our bank account, than roofs over our head, because we can have all that stuff and miss Jesus and still feel this absence that there's something missing. Jesus is saying that fulfillment for that longing that you have, that desire you have, that purpose you have, that everyone in the world seems to be searching for is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So let me lay on this plane. Here's what I got. If you want a faith that fills, you have to have a faith in Jesus, not in what he can do for you, not first and foremost that, a faith in who he is, that this is the Christ, the son of the living God, the savior of the world, and in him there is hope eternal. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would cultivate within each and every one of us God, a faith that is so dependent on you, a faith that is so satisfied in you that when the inevitable struggles of this world come, that we would believe and know that we still have everything that we need in Christ. We would believe and know that with him we will make it safely to the other side. God, give us grace to cultivate this faith. In Jesus' name, amen.